Welcome to the Leadership of Fools. We've got a strong wind blowing us straight towards some business dilemmas for us to discuss. Get on board. Today is a special topical episode recorded 12 days after an event on a cricket field in Cape Town, South Africa. We start with a dilemma. How could hashtag Sandpapergate, the Australian cricketing crisis, help shape aspiring leaders? The conversation covers the role incentives play in culture, the hidden cost of win at all costs. There's lots of dairy in this episode, milk, yogurt, cheese, and you thought it was about cricket. And then there's a difference between a strong culture and an effective one, that every person can speak up about their culture and doing this can avert a crisis. Today's guests, Alice Sidhu and Chris Carroll. Alice is an experienced digital transformation expert and in today's episode we find out about her legal background. Chris is a current CEO and an ex-player in our Australian National Basketball League, the NBL. Welcome to the Leadership of Fools. We have hastily assembled a flotation device. The ship is meant to be in dry dock at the moment, mid-season hiatus as we scrub the barnacles, but we've decided to sail straight into topical cyclone sandpaper gate and uh, have a chat to see what we can CCC. Uh, I am your Captain Rick Brown, trying to keep this whole thing afloat, but with me, hastily bailing out water as it sinks in, is uh, my good friend and first mate, Colin Beatty. Oh, what a pleasure again to be here. And I'm especially thankful that you're here with us, Rick, because you're also mid-comedy festival. And I've I even on. noticed your uh, voice is even an octave lower. Yes, I'm out there performing night after night trying to uh, bring smiles to people's faces. And, and, and as you can probably hear, yes, my, my voice has taken a turn for the worse. Are you enjoying it, Colin? I think it's actually... Um it's the future. Yeah. I, <laughs> right. I feel like it's, so it's the new Rick. Pre-show, I should be out in the car park with a primal scream session, just getting my, my inner banshee out, uh, just to get my voice at the right tone Why not? to keep you pleased. Why not? I'm willing to do it for you, Colin. Uh, also joining me, who is someone who may or may not be enjoying my new vocal qualities, it's Alice Sidhu. I always enjoy your uh, dulcet tones, Rick. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to be here. Uh, what I have forgotten to do uh, as we launch into this, uh, Colin, I've forgotten to ask you, Alice, hold steady. All right. You're here, you're locked and loaded. But uh, Colin, I need to know what um, what uh, sport you preferred uh, growing up or as an adult, whatever you like. What's your chosen sport? How has it affected you? The sport that consumed me was uh, basketball. Mm-hmm. I, When I say consumed, I remember particularly in the, it was a summer sport and I would spend five nights out of every seven at the Swan Hill uh, Basketball Stadium, which... Oh, the epicentre of sporting the, uh, culture yeah, in this country. Every, yeah, forget the MCG. Yeah. Uh, the and <laughs> I must admit, it did not have air conditioning, oh, so... Didn't need it, it. It had it, they just never turned it on. Cause that's, you're it was a hot grow, box. You're not going to blossom into an bu- elite basketball player if you're coddled under the sweet fumes of an air conditioner. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I think your uh, was your follow-up question around what I learned yeah, about yeah. leadership. How did it shape you, Colin? So I know on another discussion we've had, we talked about the power of assists. Yes, not cysts. Cysts, assists. assists. And um, I think I suddenly realised that I could be the team could be successful mm-hmm. when I played a role. Oh, no, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Of setting others up for success yes. and they did the same for me, mm-hmm. which is pretty much the same principle as making each other look good yes, that, as an improviser. That sweet improv rule. And I think I learnt that fairly early on. And so therefore a 
a 35-point game mm-hmm. um, as an individual mm-hmm. was not as effective as uh, a number of assists that set up the whole team for success. Mm, lessons well learned. All right, Alice, back to you. What was your sport du jour? Uh, the sport, yeah, it would have been of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you spent one day playing I it? I did, I did. I um, So I'm pretty active. I think you guys know that. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily you know, having played sports. Um, I did play... It's one thing to jog the <laughs> streets of Melbourne for hours on end, but... Uh, I have yoga friends. Does yeah. that count? Yeah, that counts. Um, Team yoga. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I did play softball when I was in primary school, actually. Oh, nice. I have to go back that far. Yeah, Can yeah. you believe it? I'm almost a little bit I embarrassed. I played softball. I was on the yeah, softball team in primary yeah. school. Um, so I had a good throwing arm. Yes. Not a good catching capability. Oh, how, how are you uh, swinging the bat? <laughs> I was actually pretty good. Oh, two out um, of three. So I took the position of um, outfield, I think it's called, oh, it's right ga- out there. It's a gamble though, isn't it? Because you can be out of the action for long periods. But you when that, but hope when that, that was what I was hoping, when the Rick. That was my shines strategy. On you, it really shines on you. <laughs> it's like, please don't come to yeah. me. It's the peanuts analogy, yeah. right? Charlie Brown um, with the baseball. Um, but what I did find was um, that it was a pretty important role. And so this is the, the leadership perspective, mm-hmm. which is um, you have to be uncomfortable. And even though you might not necessarily be good at everything, you can still try it. Mm-hmm. But every role is important. Nice. Um, because if the ball gets past you in the outfield, mm-hmm. that's pretty much everyone who's on the base getting to home. Yep. So it's a really good so way to... So you chose a poor place to hide. I did. I did. <laughs> and thankfully, at that age, there aren't a lot of kids that can hit that far. Yes. <laughs> All right. Swings and roundabouts. I can't help but do this. Younger listeners, Charlie Brown's Charlie relationship Brown. to softball. Um, he played. Right. <laughs> That's okay. That's all good. Peanuts, Snoopy. Good for the movies. younger kids, let me say Snoopy. That might be a better point yeah, of reference. Yeah. <laughs> and rounding out the crew, it's a, it's a new crewmate. Uh, he's swum out to the hastily assembled flotilla and he's scrambled on board. Please give it up for Chris Carroll. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Colin, for that faux welcome. Uh, <laughs> great to be here. Uh, I feel a little bit of the rookie of this team. Uh, my sport was also basketball, coincidentally, to Colin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I played, uh, well, since I was 10, I played a lot into my mid-20s. And I think the thing about sport that uh, that I took away was the role of team achievement mm-hmm. and that, the, that uh, great players can have a great game, but unless behind them is a team who've been able to optimise their talents, that it was unlikely that we'd get a result. So, you know, putting in the right amount of effort to get the outcome was probably the thing that I took away. Did you ever face off against Colin on the basketball court? I was never that good. So I... I, I would only dream of, this, stra- of, Chris, of this is the an boards o- in Swan Hill. Yeah, it was better dream, Colin. Yeah, this is an audio podcast. Can we describe the difference in height between the two of us? Well, you, well yeah. So I'll describe it as... My perspective, seeing the top of your head as I stand next to you, <laughs> what would your perspective be? Looking up my nostrils? Mm. Okay. Yes, and so you are being quite humble. What level did you reach so in I, I played about 55 games in the National League for <sighs> Perth and had a couple of years at the AIS before that and a couple of under-21 and under-23 World Championships for Australia. So and claims to fame? Uh, uh, a handful. <laughs> One, of course, was uh, guarding Andrew Gaze uh, and providing uh, an immense amount of pressure on, on Andrew Gaze. You took him to school. I did. I mean, yeah. he, 
I locked him down and held him to about 48 points. All right, so... Very impressive. So I he, dare say you might not have been able to boast that if you'd been playing with Colin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Colin, I mean, Colin, Colin would have got on triple digits Absolutely. with me. Not His constant move of running through your legs. <laughs> Very evasive. Uh, and if anyone is wondering, I sadly excelled at race walking when I was a younger man. Uh, I got to quite a high level, represented... Um, uh, Victoria at, a, at the Australian Championships as a race walker, one of the most foolish sports to excel at. Uh, there is absolutely no street cred to be gained on any social level to have been good at race walking. I've learnt that time and time again. Um, my legs and knees paid the price and my social uh, life definitely suffered. <laughs> I noticed that my friendship group grew immediately when I gave away race walking. Um, Sometimes wiggling your hips for glory is not the way to success. Um, and that's what that I've learned time lesson. and time again. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to sacrifice the things you're good at to excel. That's a lesson well learned. Uh, but we're not here to talk as explicitly about things we excelled at. We're here to tackle the topic of today. Uh, we are here to look at hashtag Sandpapergate, the ball tampering incident. Uh, we want to look at what leaders can learn from this uh, scandal uh, and uh, yeah, what, what lessons can we draw from what has played out on the national Australian cricket team's fortunes. Quick summary for uh, anyone yeah, who's not you. up to date. The Australian cricket team uh, it, it were caught ball tampering. They admitted in a press conference that the leadership group had agreed uh, pre the incident that they would uh, use it as a tactic to gain an advantage, an unfair advantage. Um, and from that, everything blew up. Mm, and I think importantly as well, conscripted a team member to actually execute. Got, so the, newest, got the newest yeah. member of the team to, uh, yes. Yeah, who, who wasn't in the leadership group. He was yeah, not in and the that's why I bring that up exactly, So Chris. there's a lot of sort of balls well, in the air. Well, let's start there. Let's start there. Mm. So the role you play as a leader, we, we talk about it in theory, mm. that you set the tone, that you're the role model, that you set in motion the culture, and that culture's played out for, a, a, in this case, a, um, a relatively inexperienced um, person in the side, but they've somehow followed a lead. Uh, what's your take, Alice? Oh, <laughs> thanks, Colin. It's all right. It's a pleasure to always hand it over. Basically, you've basically <laughs> done what the Australian cricket leadership group done. You've taken the least experience. Uh, I just feel like pass. I'm on the, soft pass, I'm on the softball field and the ball's come my way. <laughs> Get out of the way. Get out of the way. I'm having a Charlie Brown moment. Yeah. Um, I think it's actually important. That's why I brought it up because, you know, we'll talk and we absolutely should explore that whole idea of leadership, um, how leaders set the tone, the behaviour, what we say about culture, that fabulous quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast and probably lunch and dinner, I think, um, or in a digger station. Um, it's really interesting because in that in this particular scenario, what we do have is someone who was, um, you know, younger, inexperienced. Um, I, I don't know the detail around that. Maybe some of you do. I might have missed it in the news, but, you know, being drawn in um, and with relative inexperience around how to execute yeah. the strategy as well, let's keep it to business speak and say yeah. there was relative inexperience in how to execute the strategy or the delivery um, in this Could instance. Could not tamper a ball if he, <laughs> yeah. you know, really yeah, he needed which, many more years of lessons from uh, yeah. the leadership group I, on I how think, to do it. I um, think Simone and I talked about immersion <laughs> in a different um, podcast. Um, and so... You know, I, I don't. I have not heard um, much being reported about what they, what that particular player felt at the time, um, whether they felt that they had an option to say no. 
Um, but I can tell you in a business environment, you know, the hierarchies are there and they tend to operate with a, a lot of strength. Yeah, but, yeah. but I think... The, so... The, so the culture was so strong that I suspect Bancroft felt he didn't have an option. No, and that was what I was going to get to, which is um, for a number of different reasons, be it his inexperience or be it the culture, it's really hard to say no yes. because in that instance he wasn't really just um, saying no to, you know, whether it was um, it was Smith or it would have been... Warner. Warner. Yeah. He was kind, as you just said, saying no to the culture yes. and it's basically, hey, you've got the fate of the culture in your hands. How that plays out in organisations is really interesting because in those types of situations um, there might be integrity questions or there might be questions that aren't as black and white around whether they're integrity questions. Yes. And so it's about, you know, how do you face up to a client? Um, are you making a representation about something that we can or can't do or deliver? Are you being asked to ignore something? So there's lots and lots of different ways that that plays out. Um, and the culture of the organisation, I guess, defines whether you feel uncomfortable about that, whether that's the way to go or whether you feel that you can go and see someone and say, hey, you know, I've, I've either discovered this or I've been asked to do this and I don't feel that comfortable about it. And the culture um, to ground that term is the thing that influences the action I take. So uh, every single day, how I behave, the decisions I make, uh, I'm probably sometimes not even consciously saying what's valued here, what's important. That's right. How do I feel a sense of belonging within this team? And especially when I'm new to this team... I might go out of my way to do things that I wouldn't normally do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really interesting that you talk about that because every organisation um, will have its compliance, its business conduct guidelines, um, and they're there to make sure that no-one does anything that, you know, is illegal, sexual harassment, bullying, um, you know, discrimination, all of those types of things. Having said that, though, we know from things that we hear in the media or, you know, people we might come across or colleagues, um, experiences that we might have had, that those things do exist even though they're actually very clearly illegal. Yes. So the guidelines around how um, the organisation even executes on the... Um, so policy on, on doesn't always drive decisions. Is, is over complete, ..can be completely overwhelmed by the culture. Yeah. And that's really important to know here. It's almost like the, the biggest insurance policy a company can have against breaches of risk and compliance is its culture. Mm, yes, that's absolutely. right. And you'd argue that the, the bigger reliance on, on the pragmatic process and paperwork and reporting, the less safe the culture might mm. be because we're having to use that to stump it up. Mm. Uh, so what does influence culture in your experience, Chris? Oh, it's, a, it's like an invisible hand, isn't it? Mm. It's a thing that you, when you walk or choose a business, I think that's the other thing about culture and for people thinking about joining companies is to understand the culture really well. Um, just to take a sidetrack, I, I remember interviewing people early in my career and the question of culture, as in the candidate asking, so what's it like working here, would never come up. Yeah, yeah. And it's just coming up so much more now, which is great. It's also having those checks and balances in place of 
um, a strong culture doesn't necessarily mean it's a good culture because I feel like in terms of the Australian cricket team at least, they would feel like they had been working on a, a strong culture and that they had a strong culture and they might have been under the mis... Which uh, might have been a, a win at all costs culture. Yeah, yeah, and they might have been under the sort of misapprehension that this was a good... that, that what they were doing was right mm. uh, in terms of culture and that, that the way they treated each other and their goals and, and ob- objectives were a, a product of the strong culture that they had developed as part of the Australian cricket team. And I think a lot of times in business and, and, and across the board, people can mistake a strong culture with a good culture. Mm. Um, and just because everyone's aware of what the culture is and that it's got a, um, you know, it's all, it's driving us towards an objective, that doesn't mean it's a healthy culture. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, and I think um, given the global financial crisis yeah. and how some of the financial yeah. institutions and organisations, you know, acted, that's, a, that's actually... Mm. Uh, right on. But that's an interesting word. You say crisis is that the way you find out, I suspect, between a strong and a good culture mm-hmm. is when it's under pressure. Yep. Yeah. And so we've seen an Australian team mm-hmm. on tour, not necessarily playing their best, yep. losing some things, and then rever- that thing reverting to type. Yep. Actually, the culture of the squad has been exposed. Mm. But but inside, they'd probably say, yeah, it was a really strong culture. But yeah. I reckon we can be optimistic. So. I was sitting in the same seat about a month ago and we were talking about Me Too and we were talking about how it took a crisis in Hollywood to change uh, change a culture. And I suspect uh, here in Australia, we, we shouldn't underestimate, even if you're not a cricket fan, mm. the role of cricket captain mm. is often equated to be second only to the Prime Minister. Mm. Yep. So you think First, about... depending on who you ask, Yes, actually. that's right. <laughs> that's probably the case. So what I mean by being optimistic is I think if we do take time, whether it's at board tables or sporting organisations or community organisations, to unpack this and learn from it, uh, we could see some real change. And is there a way... Because it feels like... We, we have to get to a crisis to expose the flaws in culture. Is there a way that we can, you know, in a utopian, where we don't have to get to crisis point? How can we expose flawed cultures without having to get to the point where it's question. so, you know, where we see the worst? The crisis usually comes with non-performance. Mm. And so the interesting thing um, is what are you prepared to tolerate when you're doing well? And does that change when when the game changes and suddenly your vulnerabilities or your, you know, if you're in an organisation, you know, a, a poor financial result quarter after quarter or, or whatever it might be, um, loss of loss of market share, all of those types of things are usually what creates the crisis because in those times what happens is I guess you revert to what you need to do and Colin, you had said earlier, a win-at-all-costs culture. So I think there's a really interesting, um, you know, paradigm around when you're in that situation, because the crisis can be poor performance. It doesn't necessarily need to be what's happened here. Um, How do you react as a leader? Do you look at that as an opportunity to you know, steer the ship yep. <laughs> on a different course. Mm-hmm. We had to throw an analogy in. Yep. You've let me down. Through those choppy waters. <laughs> um, or it's do, high tide. Or do you... <laughs> it feels that way. <laughs> um, or do you, you know, say, the, uh, I'm just going to do whatever it takes. And that's that's what's happened here. You know, instead of saying, let's look at our playing, um, you know, they could have done a thousand different things. They chose a particular path. Yeah, it's interesting, this, this whole... Sorry, going back to the strong culture, because I think the culture of the Australian team has been quite consistent for a number of years, independent of the players that have come through. Yes. 
So, but Prevail, what, it's a prevailing culture. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. built around the totem of the baggy green, or has been for the last, you know, yeah. this idea, these ideals. So, some it's, of that symbolism. Yeah, it's got. Yeah, but, but Steve Waugh spoke about uh, the mental disintegration. Yep. Of the opposition, on the back of sledging. Yep. Now, Darren Lehman was part of that squad. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he came through. Darren Lehman's now, obviously, or the recently departed. Mm-hmm. The recently departed coach. Yeah, coach of the team. Um, and it it does survive individuals. So it's almost like an organism mm-hmm. that's independent of players. I think different people can either amplify or try and muffle, but unless there's a concerted effort to change, it will continue that doesn't... OK, let's say we put in a new captain. Now, this captain, Tim Payne, has to be and appears to be so incredibly deliberate about symbolic change to the way they play that they kind of have to. They have to swing back hard the other way for it to normalise in a position where we can be both a winning team and a respectful team. Yes, because at the moment he's establishing a very different culture of losing really quickly, <laughs> like as, as quick as possible. That seems to be the new culture at the moment, which I think is probably necessary in the com- current climate. In, but in it's that like, series, it was get out as quick yeah, as we yes, can. Yes, do not, do not make runs, do not take wickets, uh, don't do anything resembling cricket and just wait to leave, That, which I think is probably the safest bet for him at the moment. <laughs> Rick, can I have a go at answering uh, your question, which was, does it take a crisis? Yeah. Or is there a way to be more proactive mm-hmm. to anticipate a potentially flawed culture before mm-hmm. it results in crisis? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm of the belief that you learn most about a culture when you join an organisation. So somewhere within that first six months, when you're bumping up against things that just don't make sense. Why do they do this? Like, mm-hmm. I just can't... I don't get why they... It's, it's not written down anywhere. It's always unwritten. But, um, you know, an example of that is when I started as a chartered accountant back in the 90s, mm. I suddenly realised... They that didn't I f- have a basketball team. That's right. They didn't have like, a basketball it's team. the worst place to work. Yeah. But I realised if I got into the lift at 5.15, even though the policy said my hours finished at 5.15, uh, my normal response should be I'm leaving early. You know, so that's, I suddenly realised that was what was important here. Um, so if it takes up to six months to actually bump up against a culture, that should be the time that a board should be most fascinated in what those people are experiencing. Mm. Uh, and uh, I've used the term listening tour before. You almost need to, as a board, do a listening tour to listen to those people who've just joined because... Beyond six months, they will be the culture. They'll become part of it. They'll just integrate in. So, um, and I do use the word board quite deliberately because um, I do still believe, and I know I've got a CEO sitting next to me, I I know the CEO and the executive team really shape and are accountable for that culture, but I sometimes wonder whether they can see it as clearly. um, No, I think you're exactly right. right. I think, again... I think that Steve Smith was the CEO. Right. And I, I think that James Sutherland and the cricket board was the board. Yes. Right. And so, so they played a vital role that maybe they didn't they uh, didn't end up playing. I, and I think this hindsight is twenty twenty. And yes. on the look back they're seeing we actually lost a bit of control mm. of the squad for a range of commercial and perverse incentives, which I hope we'll speak about, the role of incentives in culture. Mm. And so but they themselves about setting the culture, I think that they've been integral yeah. in the way this team has gone about their business. So 
the board incredibly important role because I agree the, the CEO and the executive are there working hard to create what they think is the right culture mm. but they not may not be seeing the signals yes they don't have they're, they're really I think what I think your point is they're really too involved yes and they really can't see it necessarily yeah. so boards absolutely have a massive role well yeah. they're perpetuating it I think as well so they're it, they're not it you know it's an interesting thing around um, the the role of the board is governance um, and you can't be involved, you know, you can't be hands-on when you're trying to manage governance. Um, uh, I think in this instance and in num a number of other instances, though, when you get into that sort of level of operational activity, what you're doing is you're actively perpetuating it. Mm. So there's nowhere for people to go if they feel uncomfortable. So you take that as an example of what happens in a, in a workplace. Mm. And when you do have a concern, um, where do you go? Yes. <laughs> because if everyone, everyone is involved, as you said, Colin, you know, it, it takes six months to institutionalise the mm. behaviour. Um, some, for some people it's probably less and some people decide that they don't want it's to for them, yeah. be part of that and then go. Um, that takes a lot of strength as and that's, well. And that scares me as well, like how many talented people are Le lost to organisations because yeah. yeah. the culture is not... The way it could or should be, yeah. and no one becomes aware of it. It's a bit metaphorically. It's like uh, turning milk into yogurt, um, and so you add culture to your milk, hoping to get a nice, pungent, delicious yogurt. Um, and but sometimes you end up with this amazing yogurt, uh, but sometimes you just end up with off milk, which looks like yogurt, and you're like, "Well, this is lumpy. This is viscous. Uh, it's got an aroma." Um, and it's, it's realizing when you've got off milk and when you've got yogurt. And some people know they've got off milk, but try to tell everyone that it's yogurt. Um, because uh, we, this is the culture that we ended up with um, and knowing the difference and Rick, not being fooled. You, Rick, you delight me. <laughs> you delight me. And you, the, the way your brain works and where you take us on this ship of fools mm -hmm. is just brilliant. And I think the Australian cricket team probably started with yoghurt. They had yoghurt for a long time, but they left it in the sun too long out in the field and it became off milk, but they were, no one realised or no one was willing to admit that this yoghurt that was so... Uh, revered and so sought after i can see that on the front page milk. news tomorrow some picture of, a of yogurt rotten <laughs> yogurt oh, I, no, I want to ask a question about that yogurt is making culture i mean it all ties in guys so i want to ask a question about this i want to be a little bit controversial go on because i'm thinking about this yogurt now yeah, yeah, yeah. well i know how much you love Which yogurt as well breakfast. that's why I just, yeah. I just keep saying yogurt. um oh gosh what was i going to say <laughs> um so did they have yogurt to keep that analogy because aren't we you know and from what i've read and chris you mentioned it as well this has been a pervasive culture for a quite a long period of time and so are we saying that that was okay because they were kind of winning and they didn't have to resort to those types of tactics because then that to me comes back to what we talked about before which is is it a winning at all costs and does it only become wrong when you lose <laughs> so I feel like that's kind I, of an interesting conversation it's, it's, it's hard to it's hard to know because I think they push their culture and a lot of a lot of organizations do this they push their culture to the line like they talk about walking the line on the field and I think they push their culture to the line win at all costs but w within the spirit of the game or that's what they would have that was the sell that they had um, and that we all bought into was they're playing tough but they're playing fair they're playing hard, but they're doing it right. Um, and and but because they were pushing it to the line, it, 
no one noticed when it tipped over. So I'm going to push that again and say one of the other things I read, and I want to hear from, I'm asking this because I think yes. it's a, a conversation for, for you guys to come in on. Um, so I'm going to ask the question. So one of the things that I've read, I've read a lot of different comments and perspectives on this, and I've been a little bit surprised by the number of comments have, that have come back from, you know, re readers or perspectives around the fact that what's the big deal? Everybody does this. So there's been, there have been lots of examples of ball tampering. Mm -hmm. What is the big deal here? So when you talk about, you know, uh, pushing it over the line, it seems like the line was pretty blurry to begin with. So well, what the, makes I, this different? I think that's what, what was exposed in this uh, and what people took exception to was not the ball tampering. It was the... Um, it was the pre-planning, the admission that they got together as a leadership group and decided to do it, <laughs> whereas that, which has never, that has never happened before. A conspiracy, yeah, essentially. Yeah, there was, there was an agreement that we will second, actively cheat. Second shooter. Um, all, uh, all previous ball tampering uh, um, instances have been sort of uh, put down as a lone, a, a rogue on the field. Opportunistic. We yeah. weren't, I wasn't planning to do it, it just sort of happened. And that's the line that's been taken. No one's act actively agreed, uh, even though I'm Alice, sure... you have an intriguing look I, on your I face. I think also, Chris. Rick, on that, is that by use of sandpaper, that was next level. So You're Bringing ball, something from outside the field. Ball, ball tampering, yeah, that's exactly it's right. Always just, um, and so that was added the extra level. And I think what was also exposed was how naive or how... Um, lost in their own world the Australian cricket team were or the leadership because I firmly believe that that initial uh, press conference where they admitted to conspiring to, to cheat, they thought that would be the end of it. They honestly did not realise that this was going to blow up. They thought, Which well, was incredibly naive. Yeah, and so this, and which yeah, exposes where they were at. They thought their bubble. Yeah, they were in they a were, bubble. They were stuck in a bubble. Where yeah, they, they thought they couldn't see it. All they had to do was apologise and admit what they'd done and they could just all move on all right. quickly. We're all fired up a bit. I want to revisit where you're at, Alice, on this. <laughs> I, also want to, I also want to revisit something you planted, Chris, which was the idea of incentives. And then I also want to make sure we keep this yeah. less about the cricket yeah, yeah. Um, and more about organisations. So, Alice, where, where's your head? You have this strange look on your face. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've got a law degree, right? So yeah. I'm thinking about it like a lawyer. I, you know, it's wrong to kill someone, but it, you can in these circumstances. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I didn't do it, but if I did, it was justified and, you know, not guilty and all of that. So well, I guess what I'm wondering is, and I was saying this to someone over the weekend, um, are we all affronted, and I'll say this, are we all affronted as an Australian culture because they did that or because they got caught? I, don't know, I think that's an interesting thing. And so to bring it back with business perspective, you know, we talked about the global... And not only they got caught, but they also admitted, admitted it. Admitted it, yeah. They admitted it was, pre, you know, pre-conceived. Premeditated. Pre um, yeah, so probably. it was a very sort of deliberate deliberate act and so there are lots of organizations that have done this you know um and I, I it's kind of interesting in terms of uh where's the lot where's the line and i could so imagine organizations where the executive or the board have said well we didn't instruct you to do this absolutely and yet there was nothing absolutely really uh clear that said you've actually stepped I, over the line. I mean, I mentioned the global financial crisis before, but there's been a whole stack of, you know, other... I still remember, you know, Anderson shredding, shredding those documents. And so there are lots of examples of this type of thing happening in, in the business world to, you know, bring it back to that business conversation. And so it's the convention, I think, or the understanding 
that some things are okay or this is the way we work yes. and then at what point again which is what we talked about earlier does it stop being okay is it that it suddenly gets exposed um is it and so then do we blame people because they weren't good enough to <laughs> keep it under the radar or yeah. did it just get too much yeah where's your head with this chris i'm, I'm thinking about businesses that have that have uh tripped over themselves recently due to culture and uh, and where, back Rick, to your question about um, where could they have got an insight into their culture along the way, pre-crisis? Because I think what we're finding now with the Australian cricket team at least is now people are going, well, you know, I actually haven't liked the way you've gone about it over the last 10 years. So, and, and what we're saying, we're saying, you know, the public's going, well, this is good. In fact, I'm going to pile on mm. because I haven't liked the way that you've uh, bullied batsmen or you've spoken to fielders, or you've done these things. So if there was a way that the cricket team was able to test uh, their perception in the broader market in terms of are we acting the way that we should be as custodians of a game, I think they would have got an early lead that said we're, we're on divergent paths between what our country expects and what we're doing. So, so back to business. So there's a big publisher, online real estate company, they're having a change of leadership because there's a few, allegedly, that were doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, but, the, the t but outside of that few, there was a broad understanding that this culture was starting to head south. Mm -hmm. And so... Getting that whiff of off milk about it. But, but, but the folks in the bubble and the executive and the leadership clearly weren't picking up the signs. Sound like yummy, yummy yogurt. Or were seeing the signs and ignored them. But I, because I don't think culture gets to a bad place overnight, no. unless it's in the sun. Mm. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, and so therefore you'd say, well, what then are the tools that we need to see that we are in fact aligned to not only our internal stakeholder base, which is our yes. people who work with us, but also the broader system that we work in. So it's not only listening internally, no. it's got to be... Uh, suppliers as well. Suppliers, the, the marketplace, competitors. Um, Regulatory bodies. Yes, yes. so um, keeping open to what, what's, the, what's the whispers. Well, the culture lives <laughs> in a system. Yes. Right? These, the, cultures aren't islands, and so cultures have all these touch points. And so, and often those touch points provide the greatest perspective because they're not deep in the culture. Yes. They sit it and go, you know, for my perspective is, and everyone's perspective will be slightly different because they have different views on the culture. But it's the aggregation of those perspectives should give us an overall health check. It, yeah, there is. When you think about some examples, so we were talking, you were talking about that, Chris and Colin. I was thinking, okay, so the ones that I can think of when you said supplies, it made me think of, um, you know, the um, grocery or the retailers. Oh yes, yes. Um, and some of the issues that have been in the media, um, the bank, <laughs> the banking institutions and the and what they've done with insurance. It's kind of interesting because a lot of times the organisations or institutions or people that are in positions to speak up don't. Um, either they don't see it or there's almost, um, it's probably a very strong sentence, but it's a conspiracy of silence. Mm -hmm. yes. And it's only when something goes wrong that there's a pile on. Yes. So someone coming out now and talking about the Australian cricket team and what's been happening over the last six or seven or eight years in their view, is that really helpful now? It's like, where were you before? And so from a leadership perspective, um, you know, speak up. Where were speak you before up. and yeah. where where is the channel? Because that goes back to your point earlier that says, who do I speak up to? So not, not only am I 
a so-called probably whistleblower, but what's my avenue uh, to, do, to, to do actually that. voice yeah. what I'm really concerned about? Yeah. Because then I think you've got two separate issues. One of them is, did people, were, uh, you know, do people actively speak up on these issues? Um, and if they do, great. What makes, you know, you'd say, well, that's a great example of leadership because that's not a hierarchical, yes. um, you know, requirement. You can speak up as, as being someone in admin who's processing yes. accounts that are going to <laughs> some offshore relative that's happened. Yeah, that's right. You know, right. that happens all the time in organisations. Um, so you don't have to be the CEO or, you know, report to the CEO. The CEO. Um, so where are you? And then, where, you know, do you have the avenue once you've sort of found your courage or your leadership yeah. um, to do that? Do you have the avenue to do that? And does someone listen? So how how many times I wonder has there been you know a consistent view around these kinds of issues coming up and people yep. not listening to them? We need to find a way in a moment to translate this, um, and um, I suspect well, maybe maybe even have a follow up conversation because I reckon we've only just started to scratch the surface. I think we need a whole podcast on yogurt now. Guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot to it. Yes, <laughs> and but I am going to. Um, Make one comment about culture and then ask you uh, directly, Chris, around the incentive piece. So um, to demystify this, culture is the way things are done around here. Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, reference someone that I respect in this area, uh, whose name is Carolyn Taylor, wrote a book called uh, Walk the Talk. She would say you can determine a culture pretty quickly by where the most senior people spend their time and where they spend the organization's money and resources. So an example of that might be the uh, senior people can say, we value the customer, we're a customer-centric organization, and spend no time with the customer, or not, not put in future investment into That's customer a great metrics. Yeah. Um, so she would determine you don't even need to do a major cultural survey to determine what's actually really important here. Um, but there's nothing better, in my experience, than to looking at uh, the measurement and what is incentivized. So we talk about a team-based culture and you look at the incentives and they might be very individually focused. Uh, so that would be a, a misalignment. But I'm curious what your take on yeah, this think, is. Yeah, and to, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think people are pretty basic. Yep. And in terms of what you put in front of them will often determine the path they take. Yes. So... Uh, so just quickly on the cricket, I, yep. don't want to, I don't want to dwell on the cricket, but a terrible confluence of events, which is media rights about to be signed. Oh, right, and, and important that the, the product, which is cricket, can show to a prospective investor, which is the media rights, uh, that this is a great product to invest in. Yes. And so, therefore, the punishment, this punishment was deemed to be a long punishment. Folks aren't challenging it. But there was that incentive sort of sitting there. There is the, the new agreement that was done about how players were to be paid, which was on performance, mm. which was, I, I think, translate performance into win. Yeah, into okay. win, so yes. The more we won, the more I get paid. It's a, it's a bit of a rat in a maze, right, looking for the cheese. So, and then you go up to the board, and I wonder, I don't know, what the executive's incentives are and what incentives might sit at board. So I think on the look back, when we, when we see the path the particular cultures take, just look at where the cheese was placed <laughs> and then be really surprised. Cheese, yoghurt. Mm. 
But yeah. It's all coming yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want and, to be um, and, dairy intolerant. No, 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 no. lactose intolerant. No, no. And be, and be really surprised if the culture doesn't follow the cheese. Yes. Because the culture will follow the cheese. Yes. But then we say, well, how can we incent leaders and boards and executives to things that aren't around winning? E.g., the spirit of the game. Yeah, spirit of game, but back to business. What's the spirit of the game in business then? Yeah, yeah. What, so I'm a shareholder mm. in a business and I kind of get paid mm. through dividend when you win. Mm. Okay, and you win is outperforming or meeting consensus analysts, right, if you're at list of business, which is great. So th- that's a, a little pretty simple ecosystem where y- you make more money and I make more money because I gave you my money to make money mm. as a mother and a shareholder. So I'm not sure you know, we're going to have these cultural missteps because I think the incentives that sit around cultures are incredibly basic and primitive. And so we're always we're saying, well, why can't the culture do all these you know, sophisticated, mature things? But what actually sits around it is pretty basic. So I think there's a misstep there. And again, I'll, I'll highlight one word you also said, which was the primitive nature. Yes. So that, that implies it's out of touch with where we are today. Absolutely true. Yeah. And even the most sophisticated companies. So let's look at Uber, right, who's, who's had massive cultural yeah. missteps oh, yeah. recently. Great example. But a, but a business that had been... And you could actually... There's probably a range of Ubers up in Silicon Valley. We talk about the poor culture mm. and the boys' club mentality sitting in Silicon Valley. And, and you just say, these are the brightest in the world all coming together in this little geography and yet they're so out of touch. So how do really bright people sit over, preside and steer poor cultures? I, I suspect a big factor is what something you've also said, they were in the bubble. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what is Silicon Valley, if not one of the richest parts of the world in terms of demographics? So, yeah. You know, there's a bubble. But they're not idiots. And no, yet, and that's yet right. really bright people make very stupid cultural missteps. Yes. That's so from I, the outside looking in, isn't it? Mm. We're, we're judging that. I also think, though, we, as we said, though, it comes back to, you know, what are your, the metrics that you're using to um, assess perfor- or measure performance? Because as a shareholder, like the, bank, the banks are a perfect conversation. They're so in the news now, you know. Yeah, um, so, and, and they're, a, you know, they're a business... Um, but they're held up to public scrutiny. So everybody as a, as a community, we're offended by the, the fees and charges. As shareholders, we rejoice in them. <laughs> and so as an individual, it depends which part of me you're talking to. <laughs> you're talking to me as a customer or you're talking to me as a shareholder. The, the ugly tension of listed businesses is that people have bought in because we're expecting a financial performance in a predetermined timeline. And let's say that we incent the executive on cultural transformation. And we know that's not an overnight. That's not within a one-year, two-year right. play. So I've got an executive there who's working on something that might deliver something in five to ten, but I've got to get so I've got to get my money back in two to now, four. Now I want it now. Yeah. yeah. So okay, I want so, my dividend. Yeah. So unfortunately, investors don't help. I don't think. And I don't think that's only institutional investors. I think that's private. You know, individual investors oh, as well. Absolutely true. Uh, I think we need to transition. Uh, we're probably running out of time, I imagine, from this very special episode. Uh, any takeaways uh, to bring us home? Uh, lots of takeaways uh, for me. One takeaway would be I wish we had more time and we may revisit this because I think we've only scratched the surface. There's other questions of accountability. Mm-hmm. There's other questions of readiness for leadership. Um, so the cricket analogy there is was 
people like Steve Smith ready for this was actually someone like Dave Warner, actually a, a decent person and a, and a and a and a potential leader. So um, so I, I think there are a lot of other things we could unpack, but this has been uh, fascinating and it just starts to get me thinking about the complexity of the system. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to we are we are sort of basic as organisations and humans. And if there's something in front of us right now, we are probably going to act, uh, especially if it looks very appealing. And um, we are incentivized, sometimes not even deliberately and consciously, and sometimes we end up doing the wrong thing, completely the wrong thing, and then being blindsided. And I think, in, I think people like Steve Smith was completely blindsided. Mm. I, th- I think there's a lot of lessons in this. It's yeah. great. Alice? Oh, thank you. Um, uh, look, all the things that you said, um, I, I'm kind of, I've, I'm in that sort of business mode speak, what gets measured gets managed. Mm. Um, and in, 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 in instances like this, what we're prioritising is the need to win, whether that's a personal one as a, you know, an, as an individual, no one likes to lose. Um, what does winning look like? Um, in the business environment, what are you prepared to do, and who you know who's there to keep you in check <laughs> when you want to go rampant? Uh, I think they're really important questions. Who do you go to? How do you find your courage if you're an individual seeing something happen and you want to speak up? Um, and you know how do you fight against the um, the tide when you might be the the lone the lone voice? Beautiful, Chris. No, I think yeah, on the voice, I think now people within cultures are getting a voice that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And we've seen a lot of movements that are giving people voice, which is good. But also, uh, certainly as aspiring leaders or existing leaders, don't underestimate that the influence that you can have on a culture. Because I think mm. what I'd hate to, to leave with is that we're all victims of cultures and the system's perverse and incentives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is that we do have an ability to help shape. But it's just finding that early read to understand whether we're aligned or not. And that's that's probably where the, the mind should focus, is what are the symbols that we need to check in on to make sure that we're aligned to, again, within that broader system, that culture is on track. And if I could just, before he- handing mm-hmm. back to you, Rick, mm-hmm. uh, even if that influence is within the team that you lead, uh, if, if, if it feels somewhat beyond you that you can shape the culture, you can definitely influence... Uh, the people that report to you and the people you have direct influence around. And even if you are four years into an organisation, the person who turns up on day one or two is going to look to you for how to fit in and what's important here. Especially when you change roles. It's a a good opportunity to reset, to say, what are the the things I could have done but didn't? Yes. And what are the commitments I'm going to make to myself to ensure that I am a great vehicle for the culture that I want to work in. That's great. Um, Yes, look, it's a fascinating uh, topic. I think the exposing of one of those highest profile cultures in in our landscape, um, you can draw so many lessons from it uh, on so many levels. There's um, what responsibility do leaders have to set the tone. Um, The Dave Warner example is great in terms of what happens when you let your high performers sit outside of expectations. Um, What effect does that have on the culture? Um, And, um, of course, 
don't sit there uh, with your milk in the sun and expect to end up with delicious yogurt. Uh, just you, sometimes you've got to accept you just got off milk. Stop shoving it in your mouth. It's not yummy. It's off. Uh, thanks for joining me on board uh, this hastily assembled uh, flotation device that we call the Leadership of Fools today. You've all been marvellous. I've been adequate. Ahoy there. After re-listening to this episode, we've retitled it, Following the Cheese. Our mentoring hits. Number one, every leader does play a role in shaping culture. You cast a shadow, and this influences decisions your people make every day. Don't underestimate your influence over others, especially those wanting to prove themselves. Number two, listening without bias and vested interest. To as many potential interested parties, gives you a chance to see flaws in your culture before a crisis occurs. People need both a voice to raise these concerns and they need a clear and independent avenue. Number three, no matter how ambitious you are, taking on a leadership role before you are ready is risky. You risk your own reputation and the careers of others. The Leadership of Fools is gathering momentum. If you want to get on board, feel free to jump on iTunes to subscribe. That way you'll be up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you're enjoying them, rate us with all them stars.